Hey, how you doing Covenant? Good to see you guys today. Uh, we're in week two of Filter and I'm so excited about this series where we're focusing on worldview. I don't know that there's ever been a time where it's been more important to understand what we believe and why we believe what we believe and how to function from a biblical worldview. And so today I'm going to encourage you to take some notes. Uh, definitely. You know, we're a church that worships in spirit and in and in truth. That's right. And so I'm going to start off today by giving you a question that I believe is really the, the single most important question that we have to be able to answer as it pertains to worldview. Are you ready? This is, this is like baseline foundational. Here it is. Here's the question. Why do you choose to believe the Bible? Why do you choose to believe that God's word is in fact God's word? Okay, And so that's the question that we're going to be talking about today in this sermon that I've entitled Source Code. Uh, we're going to open up with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump in this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word, to speak your word, uh, to talk about your word. God, we believe that scripture is true. And Lord, sometimes we can be intimidated when it comes to uh, talking about the authenticity of scripture because Lord, maybe we feel like we lack the knowledge or, or, or maybe the understanding of where it came from or how it was written. And Lord, uh, I pray that today you would not just grow our faith, but also grow our intellect, our, our literal understanding of your word. Thank you, as always, for working, for moving, uh, for calling us as a church to be your people. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And we all said... Amen. Amen. So the big question for us today, why do you choose to believe the Bible? And I would say this, we have to be able to answer that question within our culture today, don't we? I mean, it's a legitimate question that deserves a legitimate answer. But as we talked about last week, because of what we called headless Christianity, because of anti-intellectualism, we hear that question and sometimes we answer something like this. Uh, why do you believe the Bible? Well, I believe the Bible because I was raised like that. I've heard this answer before, and God bless you if that's your answer, but I would say this, please don't go out and tell anybody that because that is not a reasoned response. I was raised that way just doesn't cut it. Or sometimes because we live in this postmodern culture where what's true for me might not be true for you and experience is king. There's another answer that we become accustomed to, to giving. We, we think it's a great answer and it goes, it goes something like this, okay? Why do you choose to believe in the Bible? That's what somebody would ask me. And then I would respond by saying, well, I choose to believe the Bible because I tried it and it worked for me. And we feel like it's like a mic drop moment, like boom, take that, right? <laughs> As if we just like dropped the trump card. Listen, the experiential answer that our culture longs for is, is not, is not, is not going to give actual truth. It's not going to give actual help or hope. You answer that way and you think that you just really did something. And you actually did something. When you use the experiential answer like, well, the Bible just worked for me. God just worked for me. Jesus just worked for me. You really did do something. What you really did was just create a logical hole large enough to drive a Mack truck through. That's what you actually just did. If your only answer is that you believe scripture because you tried it and it works for you, let me ask you, what about the individual that used to be an alcoholic 10 years ago? 
He went to his AA meeting and then they told him that he needed to find a, a higher power to get sober. But he couldn't find a higher power until one day he goes to a mosque and, and begins following the teachings of Muhammad, which forbid alcohol. And he hasn't had a drop of alcohol since. I mean, he tried Islam and Islam worked for him. According to your logic, in this scenario, Muhammad has just as much authority as your Bible. Not good. So let me give you an answer to this question that I believe is better than I was raised this way or I'm a Christian, so I take it on faith. Don't do that. <laughs> better than I tried it and it worked for me. Here's the answer. And then we're going to unpack it from Scripture uh, in just a moment. Here's the answer, right? Why do you choose to believe the Bible? Okay. I choose to believe in the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other witnesses. <laughs> they report to us supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's a mouthful, I know, but you can rewind and listen to it again, okay? But, and just in case you think that I made that up, Jump over to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter says here. He says this, starting in verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let me hear you say eyewitnesses. Yeah, eyewitnesses. I know you're sitting next to your cat right now on the couch, but just look at your cat and be like, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain he goes on to say in verse 18 and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day draws, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Let me just say that again. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's unpack this a bit. There's a lot here. This is like getting a steak. So I understand this is like uh, maybe you're used to eating a burger. Today we're going to eat a little bit of meat. I hope that's okay. So let's unpack this a little bit. Okay. First of all, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents. Look what Peter says here in verse 16. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We did not follow myths or fairy tales or legends. We did not follow things that were made up. Luke puts it this way in his prologue to his book. He says it like this. Jump over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. He says it like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, <laughs> for us, for you. 
Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let me just say that again, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We have a reliable collection of historical documents, not myths, not fairy tales, not legends. This is not Mother Goose. This is not Harry Potter. (laughs) These are things that actually took place in history and were recorded for us. Not only do we have a reliable collection of historical documents, but they were written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Look at what Peter says in verse 16. Jump back over to 2 Peter. What's he say? 2 Peter in verse 16. Look at what he says here, okay? He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. We saw it happen. Anybody here love a good crime drama, you know? I know for a long time, CSI. Remember CSI? Remember the guy would put on his shades and go, yeah. I'm sorry, but you get my point. CSI was huge. They had all types of CSIs too, right? Like CSI Miami, CSI Nevada, CSI Circleville. And they had like, they had a CSI show. Sorry. They had a CSI show for every city. Uh, Recently, my wife and I, we've, we've gotten into, my wife more so than me, gotten into British crime mystery drama shows and she loves a bunch of different ones. Uh, One's called Vera. There's another one, Sherlock, a lot of different things, right? Um, You don't care. My point is this, you know what would mess up an episode of CSI or any good crime drama mystery? You know what would mess up the whole show? If early on in the episode you had corroborating eyewitness testimony. If you had corroborating eyewitness testimony, there is no Mystery. <laughs> None at all. It's, it's corroborating eyewitness. People were there. They can actually tell you what happened. Multiple sources. That's what we have when we read the Bible. Corroborating eyewitness testimony. John says this in, in 1 John. Look at this. 1 John. He says this, starting in verse 1. That which, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's a lot of eyewitness stuff. That's a lot of physical contact, visual contact. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The things that we have seen and the things that we have heard and the things that we have touched, these are eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness, eyewitness. A reliable, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses. But also said during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, written by Paul to the church in Corinth, you can go there and read that. It says that Jesus was resurrected, okay? And after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 people at once. And then he says these words, okay? And you can read these in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, Paul says uh, that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom still remain even until now still alive 
at the time of Paul writing. Eyewitnesses' accounts in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Now, I've heard the arguments. I've heard many of them. Maybe there's some I haven't heard. I feel like I've heard a lot of why Scripture isn't authentic or, or you know, a thing of integrity, you know. Um, and one of the arguments is like, you know, there were individuals who came in after the writing of Scripture and they doctored, doctored the documents of the Bible and it's been translated so many times and changed so many times. I talk with uh, maybe collegiate students and sometimes they, they tell me about the myth of these overzealous Christian monks. You heard of this, right? Overzeal- overzealous Christian monks who went out and changed the Bible so that things would match up over time, so that it would look like we have older documents than we actually have. And in fact, if you actually get into a debate about the integrity of the Bible with someone, they really think that they're telling you something when they say, well, you know, you don't even have any of the original documents as it pertains to the Bible. You know that, right? And they feel like that's a mic drop drop moment. Listen, if overzealous monks wanted to change the Bible, okay, can I just explain to you really quick, if anybody wanted to change the Bible, can I just explain to you what they would have to do? There are three levels of what they would have to do. Three levels of conspiracy, right, that they would have to undergo to shift and change the Bible in a way that would come across, uh, come across credible to us today. Level number one, they would have had to have a manuscript conspiracy. Okay, When we're talking about just the New Testament, there are over 6,000 manuscripts and portions of manuscripts for the New Testament itself. Now, that, that may not sound like a lot to you. I mean, it should, but it might not sound like a lot to you. But can can I just compare these 6,000 manuscripts to a few things, okay? Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars. That's how we know about Julius Caesar and his conquest. We have around 10 manuscripts of that. Aristotle's Poetics, we have nearly five manuscripts. When it comes to the writings of Herodotus, we, we have less than 10 manuscripts. When it comes to the writings of Homer, less than 10 manuscripts of each of his writings. When it comes to the New Testament, we have over 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts. That's not even close. And somebody says, well, yeah, yeah, but, but you don't have the originals. You don't have the originals. Nope, we really don't. But guess what? We can get earlier than AD 120 with some of the copies that we do have. When it comes to Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, the earliest we can put our hands on is 900 years after the original. But nobody's tearing down the walls in college because they're reading Caesar. When it comes to Aristotle, the earliest thing we can put our hands on is 1,499 years after the original. But when it comes to the New Testament, we can put our hands on documents, manuscripts that were written within decades of the originals. So here's what that means. If these overzealous monks or overzealous individuals wanted to doctor the Bible, what they would have to do is find over 6,000, all of them, manuscripts, change all of them, not show any of their ink work. What do you mean ink work, Travis? I mean, they didn't have Microsoft Office back then. They would have had to change it by hand and not have anybody notice. Get them all back to where they stole them from and never tell anybody what they did. And that's just level number one. Level number two, well, we know that Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Funny thing about all nations, they tend to speak different languages. 
So within the first few centuries, we have the Bible translated into Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So now these overzealous monks have to find over 6,000 Greek manuscripts, change those, doctor them, don't show their ink work, get them back, go find all the Syriac, Coptic, and Latin translations of those Greek manuscripts, change those to match the lies that they told in another language, and get those back where they stole them from. You following me? And that's just level number two. Now you got level number three. Now, the church fathers had this terrible habit, by the way, terrible habit, church fathers, of of writing commentary on the New Testament. So much so that that American Bible, biblical scholar Bruce Metzger, he argues that if all we had were the New Testament, uh, from the New Testament, were the the quotations and citations by the early church fathers, we could reproduce over 95% of the New Testament just from their writings. So now these overzealous Christians, overzealous, overzealous rather monks, ha- they would have to find 6,000 manuscripts and portions of manuscripts, steal them, change them, don't show your ink work, get them back without anybody finding out. Then they got to go find Syriac, Coptic, and Latin translations, change those to match the lies that they told in the 6,000 manuscripts, get those back from where they stole them from, and then find all the writings of all the early church fathers, change those to match the lies that they told two layers ago, get them back to th- and never tell anybody that they had did it, done it, and never get caught. God help you if you possibly believe that. Come on, church. We have a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Now, it's true. But so far, we just got a good history book, though. (laughs) That's all that it would be if we left it there. And here's where it gets so good. It reports to us supernatural events supernatural events. And I I may lose some of you here because when we start talking about things like supernatural, now we got to step out a little bit on our faith. Now we got a little, now we got a little bit of a, a stretch to go as it pertains to us actually placing our faith in Christ as the Messiah. Look at what he says here in second Peter in verse, let's see here, verse 17. I'm going to jump to verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God, the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. That's an amazing verse if you think about it. It's also a very supernaturally uh, charged verse as well. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Um, We have the Mount of Transfiguration. Now I have these supernatural events. We have stuff that you can't do because we're not good enough to do them. You can't get good enough to do what Jesus Christ did here. We're not talking about psychosomatic healings. We're talking about a woman with an issue of blood who is healed instantly. We're talking about people like Lazarus being raised from the dead, people who were blind from birth, deaf from birth, mute from birth, lame from birth, healed instantly. One of my favorites is the passage where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you go to the other side of the, uh, of, the, of the lake and I'll meet you there. You know what I'm talking about, right? Later on in the boat, somebody says, hey, um, didn't Jesus say he was going to meet us out here? Because I think that's him like walking across the water to meet us. Supernatural. Things that you can't explain apart from the supernatural moving of God. Or one of the most, one of my favorite supernatural events of all time, maybe yours as well, Friday, dead, Sunday, risen. Amen. We have 
a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and they report to us supernatural events, and those events took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. Prophecies. Now, we're not talking about general Nostradamus kind of stuff, right? Specific prophecies. For example, when Jesus is on the cross, interestingly, when he's on the cross, right? Let's just go imagine, go imagine, go back with me, okay? In the first century with Jewish people who are speaking Aramaic, okay? When they speak to each other. And, and, and if I were there, um, you know, maybe we would imagine going to Psalm chapter 22, is, it, which is where we're going to go in a moment, okay? You can jump there if you want to. Psalm chapter 22. It, it's interesting, because even me just telling you, go in your Bibles to Psalm 22, or maybe you have your phone, probably that's much more likely, and you would say, punch in Psalm chapter 22. You wouldn't have been able to do this back in, back in Jesus' day and time, okay? You wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, we've only had chapters and verses within the last few hundred years, mind you. And so I wouldn't have told you to go to Psalm 22, if I was speaking to you in Aramaic, I would have to tell you, turn to the title of, of it, which is Lema, uh, Eli, Eli, Lema Shabachnia. Okay? Eli, Eli, Lema Shabachnia. That, that's where you would open in your scroll. <laughs> or in English, my God, my God, why, would you, why have you forsaken me? Now, by the way, that should sound familiar. Because it's exactly what Jesus said while he was being crucified. Now, I know you know this, but I like it so much that let's just read it anyway. Psalm 22, okay? Verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he goes on to say in verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm 22. Sound familiar? It's what's being said to Jesus while he's being crucified. Look at verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. Sound familiar? Jesus is pierced in his side. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. He's being crucified. My heart is like wax. It's melting within my breast. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws, Jesus says, I thirst. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, these Gentiles. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Think about how Jesus is crucified. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divided my garments among them. And, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Can I just tell you something? That was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. It was written by a man who never once saw crucifixion in his life because crucifixion had not yet been invented. 
This is why Peter can say back in our passage in verse 19, so, so, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Church, we have a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies. We just looked at a couple of examples of that. And then here's the kicker. They claim their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Look at verse 20, okay, of 2 Peter. Jump back over. I know we're jumping around a lot today. That's okay for us. That's okay. More of Scripture is not a bad thing. Jump over to 2 Peter. Here we go. Look at this in verse 20. Verse 20, it says this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. And keep going on here. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They claimed that these were God's words and not theirs. That's why these prophecies were fulfilled hundreds or thousands of years afterwards. That's why they used phrases like, Thus saith the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, And God said to Abraham. They say these are God's words and not men's words. But see, Nobody wants to believe that because man wrote the Bible. And so when, when we say that, it's the words of God. Maybe somebody kind of arguing the other side would say, no, it's the words of man because men took pen to paper and you cannot trust things that were written by men. That's always interesting to me, by the way, that argument. Well, I can't, I can't trust it. It was written by men. You know why? Because just go back to school with me for a moment, Okay. I don't remember anybody in my math class who got something wrong, you know, like the Pythagorean theorem, you know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Anybody who got that wrong and argued with their teacher that they shouldn't be marked off because the Pythagorean theorem came out of a math book and the math book was written by a man, so that means it's fallible. Listen to me. Just because man took pen to paper doesn't mean that you and I can't trust what is written. The real question is, is what's written reliable? Is it internally consistent? Is it corroborated? Well, what's corroboration? I don't know. Maybe three languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, over 40 authors, most of whom never met one another, who wrote over a period of some 1,500 years into one singularly woven together story. How's that for corroboration? But we get intimidated, don't we? I mean, we do. We, we get intimidated by people that seem knowledgeable because they talk in a knowledgeable way. And so often people try to pit science against Jesus. And so we hear people say things like, well, I'm a man of science. So unless you can prove to me scientifically, I just can't believe the, the word of God. I just can't believe the Bible. How are you going to call yourself a man of science and ask me to prove history to, to you using the scientific method. Do you not realize that you don't use the scientific method on historical events? That proves that they don't even deserve to be in the argument. And you're, if you're like, what, what, what are we talking about? What's the scientific method? Here's the scientific method. In order to use the scientific method, something has to be observable. Something has to be measurable and repeatable. Listen, you can't use the scientific method to prove that George Washington was the first president of our country. Why? because his presidency is not observable by anybody alive today, measurable and repeatable. 
You don't use the scientific method here. You have to use a more evidentiary uh, method here. So what you do is like what you do in the courtroom. You say, do we have any eyewitnesses? Well, I just told you that we have some of those. Do the eyewitnesses tell the story? Yep. Friday dead, Sunday alive. They say something's going to happen, and it happens exactly the way they said. You see, we have no external evidence that would argue against the Bible's claim to be the Word of God. None. Did you just hear me? We have no external evidence that would argue against the Bible's claim to be the Word of God. None. So the actually, so the actual real intelligent thing to do is just to believe what it says. Which is why I want you to know that you don't need to defend the Bible. You don't. Sometimes we feel like we got to defend the Bible. I got to defend the Bible. And I disagree. I tend to agree with Charles Spurgeon on this point. Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, one of my favorite. He says this the Word of God, the Bible, is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend for itself. I like it. <laughs> So no, you you don't need to defend the Bible, but listen to me. You had better be ready to give a good answer as to why you choose to believe the Bible. You understand me? In our world today, like you can let the Bible loose. You can let God's word loose and it will do what it does. It will not return void according according to itself. But you better be ready to give an answer to the hope that lies within you. You better be ready to to talk about why you believe the Bible. So I don't choose to believe the Bible because I was raised that way. I don't choose to believe the Bible because I tried it and it worked for me. I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in nature. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. You are good. You are great. Your word is sure. And God, we place all of our trust and our hope and our faith in your words. We believe it to be true. But God, we don't just have to take that on faith. We can take that on this understanding of eyewitness accounts, reliable eyewitness accounts, and supernatural events. I'm so thankful, Lord, that we can look back, that you don't call us to a headless Christianity, but God, you are a God of intellect and a God who balances intellect and emotion perfectly. We meet, may we do the same as your followers. We love you. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. And we all said, amen.